1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. What? A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. Yeah. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Welcome to the Rector's Covered, a podcast of conversations about hopeful theology and hopeful faith, and just generally about hope. Uh, we're here at Wild Out Brewery in North Vancouver, and our guest today is Jason Biasi of the Vancouver School of Theology. But here with me right now are Ken Best and Catherine Woodyard. And today we're talking about the notion of polarization within the church and within culture and the world in general. Um, but I can think back to some expressions of Christian faith towards the outside world. I remember years ago watching the movie Witness. Did mm -hmm. you guys see that? Yeah. Hi, Ken. Hi. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Todd. Um, and, and I just remember uh, hearing, I remember the song, what was it? Don't know much about history or oh, something yeah, like yeah. that. And, but they had a term, I think it was really strictly Amish, like it was, that mm. was the culture mm -hmm. in which it was taking place and Harrison Ford was this outsider and they referred to him as like the English, which is actually a thing mm. that that, mm -hmm. that religious group did. There's this hard line between people who are inside and people who are outside. And I think that, you know, that moves to talk about opposition or enemies, mm -hmm. but recently I found this little article from the Toronto Star, and it has maybe more to do with hospitality and welcoming the stranger than it does to do with outsiders and enemies, but I thought I would share it with you and get a little bit of your opinion on it. So just to summarize it a little bit, uh, it's well written, it's in the Toronto Star on September 18th of this year. And it starts off by mentioning that in the church, on the church lawn, there was like everything from fencing to drug mm. use in the church parking lot, risque photo shoots, and then introduces the parish priest. His, the, the place is called St. Bridget's, and the parish priest is uh, Father Carlos Augusto Sierro Tobin. And uh, they cast him in this article as this like uh, century against misuse of the church property. So the whole article revolves basically around this idea that the church has been struggling for a while because people are misusing their property, like people from the neighborhood, and so they put up this sign. Mm -hmm. But it's not just any sign, it's a sign that in big block letters, you can see it on the photo in the article, uh, in big block letters says, not a public playground. Because I think what initiated this was that they were most upset that kids were, you know, mm -hmm. using the Making use of money. it. Yeah. yeah, they had to pay money for, for to yeah. redo the grass and all well, that. Well, they spent seven grand, according to the article. Seven thousand dollars. Refurbish the lawn. The, the, the priest yeah. pointed out how much they. What spent. a fundraising campaign! That and must literally, have been. it says, "I cannot be watching out the window all the time." Yeah. And then the priest literally says, "Quote: Come on, you get fed up. I can't be behind every window." And they mentioned this guy who used to go to Bible school, who lives in the neighborhood, and uh, he he he. Um, he seems to go to rather great lengths to say like he doesn't believe anymore and he's not a Christian anymore. Um, and he, but he attended Bible college and no longer now a person of faith, but says his understanding of Christianity has always included the idea of welcoming the stranger and of being of service and being hospitable. And then he literally says, again quoted in the article, I hate to quote the New Testament, I guess yeah. it's somebody who, uh, but Matthew 19, 14, it, that's the passage where Jesus says, suffer the little children that come unto me. He says, except I guess at this church where they don't want kids playing on the lawn. So then it goes on to say that uh, Father Tobin says, listen to me. So this is the defense, right? 
we're the only parish, the only mm -hmm. parish that has puppets mass for children. So it's church service with puppets. We're the only parish that has catechisms for impaired children with mental disabilities. And we're the only parish that has group therapy for children with disabilities. Don't tell me we don't care. We care about children. We just care in an orderly way. So, and then they note that as he's talking to the interviewer, he's playing with a cat. Yeah. He's, so he seems to be welcome that. But the last, one of the last things I wanted you to see was that uh, they point out that he lives, his place where he sleeps, like he lives in, his bedroom is above the church office, and says, so he's confronted with issues regularly, and at mid midnight one evening, as he was looking out his window to say goodnight to the shrine of Our Lady of Fatima, which is the shrine there, uh, he's looking out, the, looking out the window to say goodnight to the lady, and, in, and he saw in a state of undress a young man holding a phone. Uh, taking a picture of, of, well, I guess the young woman in, in the state of undress. The priest ran downstairs to tell them to get out. And another day before sundown, he stopped a middle-aged couple who were becoming amorous behind the shrine. And Which said, I say more power. I, mean, I know, I think if I like, saw that as a minister, I'd be that. like, that is yeah. awesome. Here? <laughs> but he noticed this and said, like, and literally, I guess he likes the words, come on. Come on. Because that's quoted here again. Come on. You don't even respect the Blessed Mother. So, uh, oh, I mean, and then... Amorous behind the shrine. I mean, like, there's got to be some better places <laughs> around. But I don't know. Are there like that? No, I'm just. I don't know. And also, I, I would like to say that, like, if you were gonna try to get rid of children playing on a playground, like, just have a crappy playground. I mean, there's yeah. lots of examples. Or of, don't redo the grass. Well, right, I don't even know right, if there was a playground. It's grass. Yes. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. kind of like keep off the grass. Somebody, but he gets a point for puppet yes. mass. Like, Absolutely. We just, we just skimmed over that. As We're a, the it, only we parish that, that has puppet, puppet yeah. mass. There's, that's a There that's might a be a point. reason. I would like to see that. Who are the puppets? Like, do they have, is there a Jesus puppet? Is there a Mary? A priest puppet? Like, I would just really like to get in on puppet mass. Yeah, that's But he, I mean, yeah, he cared. Like, it was a good note when he said he care, but in an orderly way. Sorry. As a former church employee myself, I had a lot of sympathy for this guy who lives above the church. I mean, to have that level of uh, connectedness to what's happening there each and every day, I can only imagine. So I can see why he feels some level of obligation. Well, that's the other side of this. Is it, is it like anything goes? Yeah. And, and if a church decides to take care of their own property, they're somehow bad yeah. or not welcoming, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. it's, I just think that this guy comes across as such a character yeah. and he's not relenting. Like he's not saying like, we're trying to welcome yeah. them or we're trying, he's literally yeah. just saying. Yeah. And there's an insurance guy, cause I, I worked at a church too and we had somebody in our church put signs up, you know, you can't park here and you know, this is, and they were a little aggressive and I kind of struggled with it a little bit. And the excuse is always, well, liability. Yeah. Like we can't have people here because if somebody falls and then we'll be yeah. sued. So the article, the, the, the author actually goes and interviews an insurance guy, and the insurance guy is fantastic because he says, churches kind of get it wrong and a lot of public places get it wrong because as long as you take reasonable measures mm -hmm. and as long as it's reasonably safe, you're probably not going to be sued. And even if you are sued, nobody's yeah. going to win. Like it's not. And I loved his language. He said, pardon the use of this. He says in defense, of, he says, pardon the use of this, but it's in God's hands. <laughs> That's how um, he says you shouldn't have yeah. to worry about the risk. So the article ends with this. Sometimes against the trend, Oh, sorry, this is Father Tobin again. Yeah. He said, and this is the religious language again of like, we're going to stand for truth, right? Yeah. He says, sometimes you've got to be against the trend. You've got to be against being politically correct, which I don't understand what right. that has to Playgrounds do with Playgrounds are yeah, trendy? Like, <laughs> yeah, what Lady the, Fatima yeah. is trendy? One is of that? the places that I went with this was um, 
kind of reminded me of uh, conversations I've heard about the changing retail landscape and how we've got, you know, malls, these brick and mortar buildings, retail buildings that don't have a purpose anymore and are being repurposed. Like people are finding new things to do with these So they're like repurposing the church. Well, basically you've got, you have a church here that as, um, as, it's, as uh, society changes, that structure becomes uh, less understood. You know, so it's interesting for me that he's not following the community's lead. Like, how is the community That's using this? Super good. We've got dri- we've got driving lessons happening. It says in this article in the parking lot. You know, children are playing here. People are hooking up here. You know, like how is the community <laughs> using this building? Like the, the community is finding a new use for it. Right. It's and just they've given up on that yeah, other use. But the church's philosophy, or this gentleman's philosophy, it seems, is that I'll tell you how to use this, as opposed to I, how are you using. I it? was thinking of this because Catherine, you work in a bank. Yeah. And I had this article here. I didn't pull it out, but it's yeah. it's uh, people who design bank branches, mm-hmm. and they're basically yeah. like nobody goes to yeah. banks anymore. So what do we do? So they still have branches, but they're now they're cafes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I did think like that's what you're talking yeah. about. The church is struggling to kind of. Okay, but wait, you guys, did you hear? Okay, the uh, I read an article about this church in America. Uh, actually, it was a mall. It was a mall where all of the businesses had moved out because nobody can, mm-hmm. you know, pay rent yeah. in a mall anymore. And a bunch of the churches in the city decided we're going to go all in on this mall. And so within the mall, there was like a Baptist church, there was a mosque, there I, was like love all these different awesome. faiths. I love that. And they all contributed. They all put money into the food court. And yeah. so it was just like, uh, like they Did all. It work? Paid, you know, I don't like, know. I can't. You know, I'm gonna have to look up to this look article for we'll, we'll another episode. But uh, it was so. I just thought, wow, we're really doubling down because on we've the mall. Yeah. Made jokes yeah. about yeah. that, like the church is a mall trying to just yeah. attract yeah. people, attractional so, church, whatever. I would this also say, is. as a parent, like if there's like a little runaround, you know, those little like play areas. Now that is the playground. Just to tie it all back, that is a playground where there would not be a sign, uh, leave the playground. Mm-hmm. There would be a sign, yes, bring all of your children to yeah. said playground, go to your places of go. worship, and then, then go, go to Subway but in the food court But don't hire Father Tobin. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll end with him. He says, uh, somebody has to stand against being politically correct. Yes, somebody does. Yes. Somebody has to say the truth. Yes, somebody does. Stem and the he tide. says, I do it. I do it for the sake of building the kingdom here. So thank you very much, Father Tobin. Uh, we're, uh, uh, so we're going to welcome our guests now. And that, I don't have my notes here. Um, we welcome our guest, Jason Biasi, to the Rector's Cupboard. Jason welcome. teaches preaching at the Vancouver School of Theology and much more than preaching. He's the author or editor of 13 books. Probably more than that now. Thank That's you. That's a lot. That's a lot. On well Christian faith, biblical interpretation. He's written a couple about uh, snowboarding, I think. No. <laughs> uh, and thriving congregations, leadership in church history. He and his wife, Jalen, are Methodist ministers from North Carolina, and she is currently serving as minister at North Lonsdale United Church in Vancouver. They have sons who are 16, 15, and 12 years old. Hi, Jason. Hey, Todd. What a cool thing to get to have this conversation. Thank you so much. And you're about to enjoy it even more because we're welcoming Ken Bell now. Ken is our cupboard coordinator. As you know, the name of the podcast, Jason, comes from the story of this Anglican minister who stopped a practice when he was installed as a parish priest. This is like in the late 1800s in England. And one of the practices at at that church, might have been other churches as well, I don't know, was a thing called the rector's cupboard. And it was if you participated in the service, if you volunteered to help, you know, put out the linen and read scripture or do whatever, then you got to avail yourself of the ministers, the rectors, 
uh, liquor cabinet before and after the service. I think it's a fantastic practice. Well, Brian King, this minister who was installed, he stopped that practice. Uh, there could be some real legitimate reasons, but he stopped it, and it was one of the reasons the church kind of turned on him. So we're just using that tag to say, we're opening the rector's cupboard again, and That's you're great. one of the first guests here at Wild Eye that gets to taste... Um, in this case, beer. I yes, that's so right. So we welcome Ken Bell, our cupboard host. All right, I'm going to open up the rector's cupboard here and see what we have installed. So for Jason, for you at the rector's cupboard today, we are going to try two different beers. The first one you have in front of you is one of their standard beers. It's a Czech dark lager. Uh, so it's one of the one of their base beers. It's a simple one. And taste that. That's lovely. It's a, it's a wonderful dark, a little bit that of... That is delicious. Yeah, a little bit of chocolate that's, that's in there. What would Father Tobin say? Like wow. Something, yeah. something dark with and some sweetness in it. I'm in favor. It's it lovely. is great. And the second one, and you can continue to enjoy these during your conversation, but the second one is a little bit different. It's called Drinking Nemo. It's a candy kettle <laughs> sour. Drinking Nemo. Drinking and it's Nemo. A, it's a candy <laughs> kettle uh, sour. The orangey tone. It's honestly advertised. It is. Now, uh, to be honest, sours are one of those things that either people love or people hate. There's very few people who are in the middle ground on sours. Can I sours. sell somebody my sour? I'll take it. It is well named, isn't it? If you were going to drink Cherry Nemo. Jason, it's a pleasure to have you here at the Rector's Cover. We hope you enjoy your time with us. And I'm going to turn this back over to Todd and Catherine and Ken. Fantastic. just have to point out how much I love Ken's shiny shirt. It is. We should all have it shiny is a thing shirts. Of beauty. I never noticed. I never noticed. It's both and shiny. It's hard I to never do. have noticed his shininess until until right now. Well, Jason, today we're focusing on on one of one of the many papers that you've written. I know, like I, I know you're an author of all these books, but one of the things I appreciate about you is that you bring a real journalist sensibility to to many of the things that you do. I think you're a keen observer of culture, um, both whether we're talking about in the realm of faith or just in general. And so today we're, we're kind of building from one of your papers that you presented at a conference that has to do with the concept of enemies. So for us, our interest today is just asking this question, why is the church so given to kind of identifying enemies so quickly? But again, it's not fair necessarily to just cast that at the church. It's something that can happen yeah. culturally. I think it's human. Um, I think we often know who we are by who we're against, and uh, I think it's confusing when you don't know who your enemy is. So my theology teacher, Stanley Arwas, likes to say, no enemy, no Christianity. Uh, it's a little too Manichaean for me. Right. Um, Manichaeanism was an early church heresy that said things are either essentially good or essentially bad. Normally, when you say that sort of thing, you're essentially good. So that's, I mean, I've been told that's like Star Wars kind of thinking. Yeah, Star Wars is pretty good uh, as an uh, exemplification of Manichaeanism. Um, and Augustine, over against Manichaeanism, said, well, actually, everything that's created is good, but it's fallen. And it's really spiritually dangerous to consider yourself essentially good in some fashion. And it's really spiritually healthy to consider yourself and everyone else created in the image of God and then fallen and being redeemed by Christ. So this paper for me came out of fights in my own denomination, United Methodism, over inclusion of LGBTQ people. Um, and I, I was just struck that uh, whatever side you were on on that, you knew you were righteous by having the right enemies. 
Mm. Um, so if conservatives are mad, I must be getting it right. If liberals are mad, I must be getting it right. And that just struck me as a species of the larger political conversation. So you're saying the um, more opposition you face, the more that just entrenched yeah, you if you're Yeah, if you're trolling the right sort of people, and if they're angry at you on social media, you must be righteous. Um, and I just don't believe it. Making the right sort of people mad, like, who cares? Congratulations. Like, you know, we got a, a president elected that way. It, it's not really a virtuous way to be in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to choose an emperor. Um, so I, I guess I'm just trying to say I would much rather us know who we are by Jesus Christ transfiguring us back into his image. Um, and then Jesus has these amazing things to say about loving enemies. I'm serious. Love them. I'm not kidding around. The church has always tried to get right, away from I, that. Right, but like I've come across an example of that recently where the love your enemies language, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel this, and I know, like, so Christian people picking it up and saying, you know, Jesus does say love your enemies, but even in that, even when they're talking about that passage, like in this case, like Matthew 5, so, um, they're, they're kind of they're using it to really draw those lines, like, we must love our enemies, but it's pretty right. clear who the enemies are and no, why that's they're right. enemies. And that's right. I mean, it can, it can lend to a kind of uh, us versus them thing. But so this is why I use Rowan Williams in the paper, is that Rowan looks at the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels and says, okay, he goes back to the very people who've denied and betrayed and abandoned him, and he returns. In every Hollywood movie, that would be when justice is meted out. This is where Arnie or Bruce Willis just kills all the bad guys, right? That's every story that we've been reared on. And instead, Jesus comes back, and they don't recognize him. And then they do, and they're shocked, terrified. And he restores them, reconciles them, offers mercy. It flips over our natural story that says an enemy you've betrayed should get revenge. This says an enemy you've betrayed is your savior. So that's the resurrected Jesus saying, look, that wasn't just an obscure teaching. That's my whole mission is to reconcile enemies. So I do think it's good to be just honest and say, this person living in my head, making my life miserable, let's go ahead and call them an enemy and say, maybe that's the one through whom the risen Christ is trying to make me holy, forgiving, more compassionate. So some of this comes from me as a pastor with lots of critics trying to learn to say, well, what if my critics aren't really against me? What if they're for the church in a way I don't like, but need to learn from? Something like that. Or, and even if they were, you know, um, even if they were against you, um, love being a value in and of itself. Right. right. That's right. Uh, it's still the right thing to yeah, love. The, the, the idea, yeah, the idea of, um, you know, uh, loving our enemies because that's how you get back at them. Or, yeah, you, that's what I was you know, saying. Lo, lo, my, my kids <laughs> yeah. and I were out shopping the other day and uh, we're in a home decor store and there was a plaque on the wall that said, kill them with kindness. Yeah. And I just remember... Well, there's it the can't Bible just... Yeah. Saying, like, yeah, love just, your enemy because it'll be like, you're going to say right, it, right? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, like, that's he, Paul in Romans 12. Keeping burning coals upon keeping their head, right? yeah. upon And I remember head. growing up with that kind of uh, dialogue. Right. Um, it's like, you want to get people? Be I really kind to them. Those. It's, it's disempowering <laughs> for both you and for the person who's receiving the kindness. And I'm doing it's gross. air quotes right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what Paul... I mean, Paul's amazing and I love him, but he takes this teaching of Jesus and kind of runs it through his own Paulish stuff, which is yeah. always grittier and more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus makes it sound easy. Paul kind of makes it sound like a way to really win. Mm -hmm. um, with Jesus, it's always, you're always trying to lose. You're always surrendering. Uh, Paul's a little less quick to surrender. Yeah, do you, sorry, sorry go ahead. You can. I mean, do you think, talking about Christ, uh, Jesus, do you think that Jesus had, like who would he identify as being his opponent, like who he was against, yeah, um, or, or would it be anybody? So this is one interesting thing about Jesus is uh, we have a kind of myth about him as sort of constantly friendly. 
he's actually rude a lot, right? Mm. So, if, for example, if you're trying to push toward a universalist understanding of the gospel, it's actually Paul who's your friend, and Jesus is your problem. Mm. Uh, Jesus is often telling people, hey, you're a problem, and you're bad, and I don't like you, and stop this, and shut up, and quit it, and woe to you, Bethsaida, and woe to you, Corazim, and you Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, and I, you know, like, dude, chill, yo. Like, we got pills for this sort of thing. Um, so, uh, you mean now, like he sounds kind of oppositional? There are times when he's yeah, picking sure. a fight. He, he's not just, uh, he's not the innocent victim who got sucker punched. There are times when he goes looking for it. And look, sometimes it's close to the heart of his gospel. He's preaching in Nazareth. They like what he says. They're like, hey, this is cool. Let's go to lunch. And he says, hey, uh, you know, back in the days of the prophets, nobody was healed except foreign king Naaman. And no one was uh, healed except a poor widow's son from Syria. And uh, that's what God says. Right. God's always trying to heal your enemies, and they want to throw mm. them off the cliff, right? But is that because he's heal- He's talking about healing outsiders? Yeah, I think it's his own. So uh, there is opposition in Jesus' ministry, but the way I try to think of it is, uh, I get this language from Andy Crouch, that the church is called to be a counterculture for the common good. So this is the part that your priest in Toronto missed. It's the common good part. Mm -hmm. So we are called to be over against practices that are violent, dehumanizing, but we're doing it for the sake of the world God loves and is working to redeem, right? Mm -hmm. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm coming to love enemies. You're going to crucify me for it, and then I'm going to forgive you for that. Right, because you can can experience opposition without putting the label enemy on the person presenting the opposition. That's right. right? right. We're all opposed by something, someone some force. And it can be healthy and helpful to, yeah. to not label yeah. someone in a way mm-hmm. that others them. At the same time, I find it kind of liberating to say, okay, let's just be upfront. This person is kind of working against me. Mm-hmm. How do we use that friction in the church, in the neighborhood, to bring about the institution's good, even if it's not necessarily pleasant for me as a leader of the thing? So I, I have a question around your previous sort of leadership roles. Let's get into heresy here for a minute. Yes, ma'am. All right. So, no, um, I, I say that in jest, but like, have you ever come in a time where you were the enemy? Like this this happened to you and you felt like, uh, you know, that yeah. sort of persecution in terms of how you were leading? You got to watch out for pastors because often we'll play that card too quickly because we're pleasers. And so we'll, we'll experience any sort of pushback as though it's, you know, much worse than it is. And I've done a fair bit of that. Um, I realized a year or two into one of my pastorates in North Carolina, people were saying how much I had changed things. And I wanted to say back, actually, I've changed nothing. I've left stuff in place I don't like because I don't want to change stuff. And I finally realized, wait a minute, what they're really saying is you are changed. Mm. The person at the microphone is different. And I love the old guy. And I didn't vote for this guy. And I'm not happy about it. And there, I just got to let them be unhappy about it, right? Like, they'll either warm up to me or not. And ultimately, kind of who cares? That's their own mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I've spent enough time with conservative Christians. Uh, I wouldn't be a Christian without conservative Christians. God bless them. Uh, and I'm liberal enough that I've often been kind of the like liberal heretic that they're worried about. So to, to the conservatives, you're to the liberal them. heretic? Yeah, I'm their like, most liberal friend. <laughs> but to the liberal, you're the... With the liberals, I'm like a, a frightful friend. right-wing yeah. Who you are know, in? No, knuckle-dragger. Yeah. Um, so I do like the edges. I, I do think... Uh, I take this uh, from Andrew Walls, uh, missiologist, that the edges are where things are renewed, right? The overlap between ecosystems is where new life forms come about. Uh, the Holy Spirit is often at work uh, among the people everyone else ignores, the poor um, and uh, refugees and so on. So being on the edge of a group is great, I think. Uh, Martin Marty, the sort of guru of church history in America, says uh, the renewal of the church will come from the left of the right 
and the right of the left, and I don't mean the middle. Mm. <laughs> you got to be on an edge that makes everybody else in your camp nervous, right? And then you're going to find yourself surprised by friends from the supposed other camp who are singing uh, yeah. a similar song, right? So, I mean, what you're describing sounds so far away from where we are. Like, are there any edges left? Like, I, I, I don't, like, I look in the news, I look in terms of political culture, I look in terms of um, religious culture. It seems everyone is just doubling down right. on no edges. They're in, yeah. they're out, they're left, they're right. That's this right. is what I'm, this is no, where I am. That's just mannequinism, right? Like, you know who you are by being pure, and the other is essentially vile. Um, so, uh, Augustine's response to Manichaeanism was finally about God's good creation. God made everything good. And so to speak of it as though it's essentially uh, evil is to desecrate God's beloved world. Um, and I think that's probably the answer in this case. So, uh, as you were talking about the way Christian groups often sort of vilify the outside, a pastor in Indiana one time described the way Christians act about the world, sort of like a mom in a public bathroom. Don't touch that! Uh, get away from that! Right. That's horrible! I'll kill you! That. Oh my God, Isn't that a good that image? Really good, yeah. You can't it's get that totally one out of your mean. head that after... So I know, mean. I know. Just um, stand in the corner and don't <laughs> touch right. anything. Hit yourself! Yeah, exactly. um, but uh, that's actually not the world God has created. Um, the world is crea that God has created is uh, full of creatures God loves, dies for, and is longing to redeem. So I, I think we've... Um, and, and I do think it's a matter of trying... Here, let me try this. Uh, I have been the heretic before. I'm not going to go into details. <laughs> I didn't like it, okay. and it inconvenienced my life, and I'm still mad about it, and I'm still going to therapy for it. Okay. There's nothing um, you liked about it? Nothing. Okay. Not a thing. They were wrong, mm -hmm. and okay. Jesus will make them pay. I'm just okay. kidding. All right. So, um, so a friend of mine said to me, all right, this is terrible, and I'm sorry this happened to you, but there's really nowhere else to put this except you have to say it's an unwelcome gift. And if you put it in any other basket, it'll do you harm. And I think she was right. Um, so I had to figure out what am I going to actually gather from this as a gift that they didn't intend. They were Sorry. not trying to bless me. This was an this was an incident you're this talking was, about. Yeah, this was the way church people mistreat one like another. Like like an incident within within your church experience. It had to do with trying to get ordained and being told I wasn't ready and that should you go away be. and come back. Right. And so so your perspective on I that could was name names if you like. Oh, I don't need that. Uh, <laughs> But the way that that became rational for you or understandable for you was to say, this is a gift. Because that sort of skirts right. dangerously close to the everything happens for a reason. Yeah, and that's not true. Which I don't, uh, which no, I don't not care true. for. So these, the folks who made this decision were wrong, and I could detail yes. the way they were wrong. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I had to receive it as an unwelcome gift. That is, it's not one I would want back. So I'll, I'll give you another example. Mm. Stephen Colbert had this boohooing session with Anderson Cooper in an mm. interview recently. It was good. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Our culture is still interested it, in God, it, mm, right? Mm -hmm. So Pause Anderson Cooper's mother's just died, and he's weepy in the interview, and he's asking Colbert, tell me about the plane crash that killed your father and your two brothers and how you say the thing you most wish had never happened is actually the thing you're most grateful for that's made you you. Um, and Colbert quotes Tolkien, what punishments of God are not also gifts? Um, I don't know how to make sense of any of that, but... Um, but I do think if you just fight the thing and, and you leave it as essentially an enemy, a sort of uh, villain to be um, thrown out, then I think it's spiritually unhealthy. I think if you can figure out a way to say, is there some way, despite this person, Jesus is actually trying to transfigure me, um, 
you stand to learn something from it. Don't waste that pain. Yeah, I do like the idea of transformation. Like over time, uh, having grown up in the church, the cross has meant different things to me over time. For me right now, it's a symbol of transformation. Oh, that's good. Of things being changed. Yeah. Right? And so I do like that idea that uh, as things come to us, they can be transformed. Not that it happened for a reason. That's right. Um, events happen. People say things. Things happen to you. And then they can be, those things can be trans transformed into something. They can. That shows you more about who it is that you're made to be. Uh, Kate Bowler yeah. wrote the definitive book on that. Everything happens for a reason and other lies I have loved. Yes. Right? It's just, yeah. it's just, it's, there's no Jesus in it. No. There's, there's no grit yeah. in it. It's and just it's very disrespectful. Yeah. And it's deeply hurtful yeah. when you lob it at people. Mm -hmm. um, Jason, you, uh, I remember a few years ago, you did a little event for us at a local distillery. Um, and that, of course, was closer to the time you came up to Vancouver from, from Duke University. And so we got you to this thing asking, uh, just, outlining for us like help to help explain christianity in the american south to us and and so you, you did a great job and, and i remember at the time i think it was there that you said and i've remembered it since you, you said a christian better have something better than a stance hmm. um can you elaborate on that i mean you have been to some degree already but because i grew up like it was always trying to figure not that i was trying to figure out but i could pick up from the culture like what's our stance on this issue or what's our stance on you know these, this group of people or this and I always it was always uneasy for me and my actual faith mm. tell us what you meant by that gosh well it sounds cool I wish I uh, knew what I meant by that um, so uh, it was probably the distillery yeah. <laughs> yeah Catherine and I were both wanting to ask you what what does this mean this mean you know so I've learned a lot from Sam Wells who's a Church of England priest pastors in London and he speaks a lot about Christian ethics as improvisation so um, I've used the image quite a lot of reading uh, the Bible as being like uh, acting in a play. We think that to be, to be a biblical reader, you need, an ex be, need to be an expert, learn a weird language, learn the historical context. Some people need to do that, right? You need some experts in Elizabethan England to tell you what the accents and the costume looks like. But not a lot. You really only need one. <laughs> what you really need are actors. And theater goers and someone to live out the story. I, I find that deeply liberating to think as a way to think about the Bible. I take that from Nicholas Lash. So that's good. Sam Wells said, yeah, that's good, but it's not good enough. Because in Christian life, we don't get a script. There is no script. We don't know the lines. What you are actually is an improvisational actor. That is one who's relatively relaxed, who as Stephen Colbert says, has learned to love the bomb. You're not afraid of bombing in front of people, mm -hmm. right? If you're afraid, it'll, yeah. it'll die. Um, so in improvisational acting, you have to be ready for whatever offer comes. And whatever offer comes, you say yes and. If you block it, improvisational acting dies on and, the stage. So you're saying like a stance prevents so, you from... Right, a stance suggests you're kind of like, no compromise. I'm just going to be here, stuck in concrete. You can't move me like, you know, uh, an offensive lineman in football or something. But an improvisational actor actually has to be relaxed, comfortable mm -hmm. enough in their own skin that someone offers something and they receive it and, as Sam Wells says, over-accept it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you block it, it, it kills it. Um, I think that's more like the Christian life. You can't approach people as though their stance is either. You have to be willing to approach them as the image of God, somebody through whom Christ is offering you a gift, even if they mean you ill. Yeah, I love that. And I think, um, you know, so much of that stance can be, you know, sort of characterized by, you know, backing up a little bit of this enemy, this them and us right. narrative. 
and um, you know, how do you how do we forge through that? So like Thanksgiving's coming, uh, Christmas is coming. Uh, we have families, people that we're related to, and you know, if I think of of my family, I have some uh, family in the U.S. Um, we could not think more differently. And These people our, are armed, you realize. Uh, they're not. They're <laughs> lovely people. Uh, but, you know, how do we, um, how do we move through and, and choose something more hopeful? How do we grasp onto this hope that allows us to not contribute more to this sort of them and us, this polarization that is just seemingly uh, difficult to get away from? Yeah, so... I think there's a uh, there's a kind a kind of Biden answer to that that says uh, I'm going to be a centrist. I'm going to work across the aisle. I'm going to mm-hmm. work with people of good. And I just don't believe it. Like that worked in the '80s. Like that day is gone. Right. Like um, so. Uh, I, I take this from Lauren Winter, who writes about something she got from an art critic. Um, and this art critic said I had to get used to standing in front of a painting and saying, What would I like about this painting? If I did like anything about this painting, i.e., I don't like it at all, but I'm going to find one tiny like, little bit of What would I like about it. this relative? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. If I did like anything about this relative. Um, so I found, as I dealt with criticism as a public figure in the church, that I would try and take the 1% of it that I thought might have something to teach me and try and use that in a way that I could learn about the congregation or the person or be better at being a minister. And then somebody feels heard. And you haven't simply blocked them. You've received the one health-giving part of what they're offering. In terms of family, I, you know, I have similar family kinds of dynamics. Uh, I actually think sort of enemy love is somewhat helpful as a category. But even then, there are extreme cases where you do cut yourself off from your family. I mean, there are people who have to say, this is not life and health-giving, and i got to bolt. Right. i got to find a chosen family that's going to love me in a way that... Uh, I'm not simply in danger, right? Um, now, most of us don't end up having to go to that place. And the family becomes the place both that wounds us and gives us life. And I find both the relatives I struggle with and myself tend to get through it by drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a, an interesting tactic. Probably yes, not gone to. something Jesus is asking us no. to do. Yeah. I had to, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's impressive advice that I give to my sons who are 22 and 20 now you know and you always you're so aware of 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 what you your shortcomings as a parent or something but i probably overthink it but there's this little line i sometimes use with my kids and i've used it as in when i was a preacher and stuff before that i don't know how true it is but i I think i've experienced it it's true that we'll do most of our damage when we're right not when we're wrong Hmm. that and so I'll often say to my kids, like, it, 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 it's not a victory to be right in a, in a lot of cases in, in the world. In fact, as a, as a father, as a husband, as a spouse, as a friend, you're probably going to do more damage when you're right. Yeah. And I think, I think if I'm picking that up from anywhere, there's a chapter in Thomas Merton. He has a book called New Seeds of Contemplation. And there's a chapter in there that just he, he calls it moral theology of the devil. And I wouldn't want to use this to then go, yeah, the people who think differently, they're now the devil, right? But, but he's basically outlining that the, that the moral theology of the devil is to think that you're right and, and everybody else is wrong. So this quote I've got from there, he says, in the devil's theology, the important thing is to be absolutely right and to prove that everybody else is wrong. And whether it's a family conversation or a, that kind of idea of like actually working to convince the other is something that's just 
always, always present. And you were talking about the cross mm -hmm. and what it means to you. Merton goes there and he says, when you think like this, the cross is no longer a sign of mercy. Hmm. It's a sign that law and justice utterly triumph. And he says, you know, that kind of thinking and, and teaching is, is uh, presented by people who are actually unconscious haters of, well, he says men, because it's... So I thought, Jason, maybe as we move towards uh, ending our conversation together, um, to ask you questions around the lines of like what you see as, as more hopeful. Uh, you mentioned in, in your uh, paper that Christians, and I think you said it here today, that Christians tend to identify themselves by who we're not, and that we should be identifying ourselves by who we are. So in terms of Christian faith, how would you describe that? How can you positively identify rather than negatively? As you talk about Merton, I'm thinking about Paul Ely's uh, book, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, and it, he describes a, a Catholic moment in American literature, because the book is about Merton and Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy and uh, Dorothy Day, and it's about their friendship. They all knew each other, they wrote letters to each other, they learned from one another, and they're all really different, uh, and it's an amazing book. And at one point, you know, Merton died before the others, and uh, Merton had an arch enemy within the monastery. There was another writer who was much more pious Catholic, who wrote kind of devotional literature, who was always jealous of Merton's success and of his publication sales and so on. And, and the monastery needed Merton to sell books because the money was helpful. Right. And so when Merton dies, uh, they describe Father so-and-so, like all the monks bury their brother when, when he yeah. dies. And they describe Father so-and-so heaping dirt a little too enthusiastically on oh, Merton's no. grave. Um, so these are real enemies with names and faces uh, in Merton's case. And I don't even remember the other poor guy's name. Um, so how to be identified by what we're for? I, I'm just fascinated by the stories in the book of Exodus about Moses' conversation with God on the mountaintop. It's full of darkness and it's full of obscurity and it's full of brilliance and uh, it's full of failure. And um, so there's this one weird moment where, uh, it's all weird, but there's this one weird moment where Moses says, hey, we've been talking, I ain't never seen you. Can I like see you? And God's like, no you'll die. But here's what we'll do. I'll put you in this little hole and I'm going to walk by you. I'm going to cover your eyes. And then when I'm past you, I'm going to take my hand away and you can see my backside. That's weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so they do that. And um, so Christians have looked at that text and said, well, the cleft in the rock is Christ, the safe place from which we can glimpse right. God. But they've also said, well, the backside of God is Christ, the visible bit of God. And really, you can only follow God from behind. The only part you ever get to see of God is the back, because we're always going where he's leading. We can't see his front, as it were. So it's a text full of mystery, and you don't want to hang too much on it because it's trying to be obscure and difficult to interpret. But I'm just struck that uh, uh, the main thing we want to see is the rear of the one we're following <laughs> yeah. and, and not uh, know who we are by who we're making fun of, excluding, kicking uh, out, mocking. Or, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank um, you so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's great conversation, and it is and it is and does remain really hopeful. This uh, this call. So thank you, and thank you, Ken and Catherine, for thank your time. You. We've Thanks, got friends. To Thanks, Jason. Ken's coming back. More cupboard stuff, Ken. Uh, I just want to thank Jason and thank Wild Eye. I'm going to close up the rector's cupboard, but before I do, uh, Jason, as a thank you for being on the podcast, we have a couple bottles of beer for you. Not the Nemo. Uh, wild, you don't have to have the Nemo. Wild Sister and all the single ladies. I love the name of that. And beer. a couple glasses. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much. And thanks to Wild Eye. And we'll talk to you guys again thank you very another much. time. Thanks. Well bye bye. Thank you.